All right, take your Bible. We're back in the book of James, plugging along another installment as we make our way through chapter 4. The lifestyle and convictions of a biblical Christian. You want a theme for the book of James, it's real Christianity. This is how saving faith is proven. This is how it's validated. This is how it's demonstrated. It works, and it works by what it does, and it works by choices it makes to not do certain things. And so this is the half-brother of Jesus Christ to the early church, oldest book in the New Testament, and he's heard reports, presumably from afar, persecution drove the people of God out of Jerusalem, word comes back, a kind of Christianity that James is concerned about, hence the book of James. Five chapters, this is how real Christians live. If you say you have it, you need to live it. If you live it, this is what it looks like. That's the big idea. I want you to begin with me in James chapter 4, verse 10, because the theme, I think, that shapes this section, chapter 4, revolves around a central idea, and it's found in verse 10, and it continues through the end. It summarizes the first exhortations, and it introduces the next concerns ways to not behave as a Christian. Really, chapter 4 is, the whole thing is about Christians don't do this. They don't love the world. They don't live like the world. Uh, They live differently. But look at verse 10. Humble yourselves. Remember, humility is a choice you make, not a gift you receive. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. It's a choice you make. You humble yourself. Humble yourselves, verse 10, in the presence of the Lord... That is because of who he is and how he is, submitting and recognizes his his majestic station, his exalted place, and he, as a consequence of your humility, will exalt you. That's the big idea foundation for what he has said not to do. Don't love the world. Don't behave in ways inconsistent with grace. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. We read that in verse 6. Verse 11, flowing out of the call to humility, is a call to stop acting proud. And here's the big idea for the section we're in, these next two paragraphs, one we've taught, one we will today. Stop playing God. Humbly stop playing God by down-talking and by presumptive planning. Stop playing God by down-talking because you usurp God's role as judge, jury, and lawmaker. And as we will see today, you get into the category of time, life, reality, opportunity, which God alone governs and controls. Stop playing God is the big thought, I think, beginning in 11 and ending in 17. Do not speak, verse 11, literally stop speaking against one another. Negative speak, talking down, damaging speech. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, which judging goes along with down speaking, you make a judgment, you talk about it in a negative way, speaks against the law. What law? The law of love. The law that forbids tail-bearing and down-talking. The law, he judges it, 
He judges the law. Look at the end of verse 11. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but you're a judge of it. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver. Don't forget this. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one, emphatic, the one, the only one who is able to save and destroy. Only one is able to adequately assess God alone has the knowledge that produces real fairness, real justice, real consequences consistent with what should come, real judgments and real words. There is only one he's able to save, that is deliver, and the one who can destroy, execute consequence. And then I love the way 12 ends. Who are you who judge your neighbor? Who are you to do what God alone has a right to do? When you speak negatively of someone, you are doing what God alone has the right to do because God alone has knowledge of that someone, motives about that someone, realities about that apparent observation. You're not in the judging business if you're a Christian, and you're not in the down-talking business, speak against, because you can't adequately assess. Being a degree off, one fact off, can compromise and corrupt your conclusions. Saying nothing about the law that forbids down speaking. Do not do it, God says. Don't judge your neighbor. Don't speak against your neighbor. It's my territory, and I alone have the right to do it. So... Verses 11 and 12 had to have to do with the call to stop. Implication is they're doing it. And it's fair to argue that we could say that today, stop it, because it's so natural to our humanity slash depravity. I am prone to pride. I'm prone to prejudging. I'm prone to assessing, and I'm prone to talking. Therefore, I need to stop playing God with others. Number two, stop playing God with yourself or in your own life. The lives of others now with your own life. Verse 13, come now. Come now and say, hey, listen up. It's a unique phrase. It's designed to say, hey, listen to this. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city Spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Verse 17, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do, i.e. what I just said, and does not do it, to him it is what? Sin. Prideful. Sinful. Unacceptable. Come now. We're going to talk about playing God, and I want to begin with just a, a bit of a definition of what, I'm, what I mean by that. Playing God means we act as if we are God, or we have knowledge like God. As if 
We live in a way as if he didn't exist. We make claims as if he's not sovereign. We put ourselves in a place which only God is qualified to fulfill. So all that with our words, we're going to see that with what I'm going to call presumptive planning. Maybe another way to say it, prideful presuming. Let's look at how they were playing God. They were playing God, how they did it. They did it by habitually planning without God. Presumptive planning. Planning without God in mind. Verse 13, when they would do something, today or tomorrow, where they would do it, We will go to such and such a city and spend time there. How long they would do it. We're going to spend a year there. And then what they would do while they're there. They would engage in business and make a profit. This is about planning presumptively. When, where, what, and how. Now listen, some of you wouldn't know a plan if it ran into you. Right? You, you just not a planner. Sometimes I can get in trouble because vacation for me is not having a plan that I have to live in the confines of. Let's just go with the flow. That's not always pleasing as a vacation plan or an activity plan. And if you're a planner, that frustrates you. But for, for many of us, we don't plan about it. We, we hardly plan anything. We just let it come. This is about planning what they were going to do, where they were going to do it, and particularly as it relates to buying and selling, engaging in business. And it's important to recognize that this comes right out of their culture. In the Jewish community, uh, trading and traveling is, it was a common thing. Um, matter of fact, the word for engage in business is the word we get emporium from, eparuamai. Trade, buy, sell. So if you go to the sound emporium, what that is is the buying and selling of sound, records, CDs, digital media, buying and selling, traveling and engaging in business. And an example of that, if you wanted to follow it, is Aquila and Priscilla, the tent makers who had a commercial business making tents. And in Acts 18, they go from Rome to Corinth. They go from Corinth to Ephesus. Romans 16, they go from Ephesus to Rome. And in 2 Timothy, you find them going from Rome to Ephesus. So this idea of commercial movement was common in that day. And it was this claim, this presumptive plan is, I'm going to travel, I'm going to work, and I'm going to make a profit. And maybe you would say, aha, that's the problem. Harry has presumed he's going to make money. Making money is the problem. Well, the planning involved making money, and that is not what made it wrong. There's no harm in planning to make money or traveling for that purpose. Now listen to this. The harm lies in the complete ignoring of God in those plans. He's using a common scenario to make an application because of an observation. Living life as if you're God or living life without God. The commercial movements of your life. The work-life category. So that's how they were doing. At least that's the illustration he uses to bring to bear the concern 
the prohibition of what Christians should not do. And, and you can't say, well, wow, bad for them. I would never do that. Well, we do do that. We too plan without God. When we do it, well, we'll say, I've, I just, I've talked to a bunch of students this week. Hey, what are you doing for the summer? Are you graduating? What do you have in mind? And so, well, this May, I'm going to. After graduation, I will. We just saw missions teams. This summer, I'm going to Albania. This summer, I'm going to New Zealand. This is what we do. I'm in a week and a half. Karen and I are headed to Wyoming to do a Master's Fellowship Pastors Retreat. I'm going to Jackson Hole. I'm going to Yellowstone. I'm going to the Grand Tetons. We do that, don't we? And then where we will go is housed in that. I'm going, as I just said, to a certain destination. I have told you when I'm going. I told you where I'm going. I'll be there 10 days or 7 days. That's how long I'll be going. That's what he has in mind. When we say, this is what I'm going to do, where I'm going to do it, how long I'm going to do it, we enter into the zone of Danger, the danger of leaving God out. And we should not play God. Just like we're not qualified to judge, we're not qualified to plan and presume on the future because we're not God. There's things we don't know, things we don't control, which is what verse 14 is about. How they did it, how we can do it, and why we shouldn't do it, verse 14, the ground of reason. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. So I'm going to argue at the very beginning, I'm going to give you some reasons why not to be presumptive in your planning or assuming you're doing anything, anytime, for any distance, at any consequence. Number one is because you don't know enough. You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. Which is why in the end, he says, instead you ought to say the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. Because the Lord alone knows what tomorrow will hold. Listen to Proverbs, in other words, the contents of tomorrow. Proverbs 27.1, familiar territory. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Don't boast about tomorrow. Karen and I, we, as a family, we watch a professional supercross, motocross. There are two guys competing for the... Anybody want to say amen to that? You with me? <laughs> so it's, it's a tradition. So Saturdays, you'll have a couple of races. Sometimes it's a triple crown, and they'll do three 10-minute races. And uh, grew up with motorcycles. Son loves it. Family, we enjoy it. So, and they're coming to the end of the year, the culmination of the year, just a few races left. Our guy is leading the championship points, Eli Tomac, old guy. So we root for the old guys. And uh, his chief competitor, just a few points behind, his name is Cooper Webb. And Cooper's a Christian, rides for KTM. And in the first heat race last night in Nashville, Tennessee, Johnny, my, my wife said, hey, if you go to Nashville, you can watch these races in a big stadium. <laughs> First heat lap, second or third corner, Cooper Webb goes down, 
front end washes out. He goes down, and the guy behind him hit him full on in his helmet head. So this is a guy who is trained for a year. He is in a competitive position to win a significant achievement. And in one corner, in one berm that let go, berm is the little kind of mud railing, it let go, he goes down, and a guy hits him in the head. He ends up out of the race, ends up in the hospital, ends up not able to compete. You know what that was? The loss of a dream in a nanosecond. Did he have control over that? He didn't. He didn't know what that race would produce. Some of you are going to get a report, and it's going to change your life. You're going to go into the doctor. Everything's cool until it's not cool. There was a 17-year-old young man who passed away this week in the state of Washington, PE class. Somehow, he injured his head with a goalpost. I'm not sure how that happened. I don't know if goalpost came down. Gone. 17 years old. Started out the day, going to live today. You don't know what tomorrow will be. One of the drivers for, Lord, if you will it, is the recognition that you can't know it. Nothing's going to happen unless the Lord wills that it happen. Karen and I were in Psalm 139 this week. Before I had one day, all my days were numbered. However long Harry Walls is going to live has been predetermined by the one who does know what and who controls that what. I don't have to worry and live in fear. I'm not going to live a day longer. I'm not going to live a day shorter. Psalm 139 says, God loves me, he made me, he's intimately acquainted with me, and he knows how long I will live my life, and he knows how long you will live yours. But you don't. Which leads to this second idea. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You don't know enough, and you don't control enough. You can't even testify to the guarantee of the existence of tomorrow. You're like that fog I saw coming down the five today, hanging in the valley, that layer. We leave church today, that layer's gone. The vapor is atmos from atmosphere. So it's, it appears for a little while, and then it vanishes away. Life is... Here's the problem with presumptive planning. There's the issue of uncertainty. I don't know what's going to happen today. I may not make it home today. I may not be alive tomorrow. Or something may happen tomorrow that changes the way I live tomorrow. The problem or the issue of uncertainty and then the issue of what I'm going to call brevity. We don't even know if we'll be alive Isaiah 40, 6 and 7, we're like the grass and the flower thereof. We're here and we're gone. I mean, (laughs) you like the green hills? A little bit of Irish flavor here in California? Just wait a little while. (laughs) Quickly from green to light brown, no color. 
That's your life, according to Isaiah. Psalm 103, 15. Just like California, it lasts a few days. It's quickly scorched by the sun. It's gone. Turn back with me to Job chapter 7. I just want to just to highlight this because I want, or I'm hoping, that there's a conviction birthed in you, not a fear, but a reality. It's like the book of Ecclesiastes is a reality check. You're going to come, you're going to go. You're going to come and your duration is not long. You don't control it. Life is vanity. It's like the the smoke coming up from a candle. You can't control where it goes. You can't control how long it lasts. That's reality. And Job is reflecting on reality because he is in a difficult space and place. And he says in chapter 7, book of Job, verse 6, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to an end without hope. Anybody know what a weaver's shuttle is? Yeah, I didn't either. So it's, according to the examination I did, it's a device used in weaving or sewing for passing the thread of the weft. I have no idea what that is. Between the threads of the warp. Who knows what that meant? Oh, we do. All right, so we're seeking counsel at the end, all right? But let me bring it down to where I live. My grandmother was a seamstress. She made slipcovers and and curtains and clothing, and I was her grandson, and I'd spend time with her, and so she had this singer working industrial commercial sewing machine and she would get that going and she would pump the pedal and and there's a deal on there that threads the needle from the spool and it punctures into the cloth and you get stitches the shuttle is the thing that goes up and down doing that and when she's working you can't see the shuttle You can hear the whirring of the machine, but you can't visually see because it's moving so fast, the piece of metal that spools it, threads it through the needle, and then the needle goes into the cloth. That's how swift life is, according to Job. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. Verse 7, remember that my life is but breath. Look at chapter 8. Verse 9, for we are only of yesterday, we know nothing because our days on earth are as a shadow. We only last a little while, it's why we don't know a lot. And even if you know a lot, you don't know a lot. Look over at chapter 9, verse 25. Job's still talking. Job reflecting, he's in one of the crucibles of life, which promotes thoughtful reasoning. Now my days are swifter than a runner. Okay, the word translated in some of your Bibles is post, like post person, courier, somebody who carries the mail. Matter of fact, Herodotus, a historian, says nothing mortal travels so fast as these Persian messengers. So think Usain Bolt, Olympian, with a mailbag on his back. Those guys roll. That's how life is. Swifter than a post. They flee away. Verse 25. They slip by like reed boats. These are Egyptian boats, light boats, fast boats, speed boats. 
And that's what my life is like, a speedboat. Like one of those hydroplane, hydrofoil boats. You ever been out to Lake Piru where they have the boat races? Anybody ever seen that? Man, I'm, I got one and one. You guys got to get out more. There's a 10,000 horsepower boat. It goes 273 miles an hour. In three seconds, it's at top speed. How is that possible? That's fast. This passage says they slip by like reed boats. Reed boats are the fast boats. My life is here and gone. The next illustration, my life is like an eagle, verse 26, that swoops on its prey. You know, it's, it's spiraling up with the, uh, the thermal draft, the currents of the wind, and gets to some lofty height, and with an eagle eye, it sees a prey, and it dips its wing, and it's like a rocket ship. That's how your life is. It's fast. It's a nanosecond. It's not going to last long. It's like an eagle, more fleeting than you can imagine. Look at chapter 10, verse 20. He said, would he not let my few days alone, referring to God? I just live in a few days. In the big picture, I'm not going to last long. Listen, I turned 65 in a month. That's shocking to me. It's like the mile markers just are going fast. And I was saying to Karen last night, you know, I don't know. I don't, I'm, her parents live a long time, but they're not my parents. <laughs> my dad died young. So I'm thinking, how many of those cycles do I have left? Your life is a few days in the big picture. You don't know how long you're going to live. You don't know if you're going to live a short time or a long time. But when you put it all together, it can be said, life is brief. And the reason you ought not enter into presumptive planning is because you don't know what a day will bring forth. Isaiah 56, the people of God were saying, tomorrow will be like today. No, you don't know that. So you need to get out of the planning business, leaving God out of it, presuming that I know what tomorrow holds and how many tomorrows I have. I don't know any of that. It would be futile to presume. Now listen, what I'm not saying is no planning and preparing. So let me just say that. Because you have the proverb that says, consider the ant who makes preparation in the time of harvest, so the ant has food, and she's, the ants are considered wise, because they do make plans. And they do prepare for the future. So don't, don't misconstrue this to say, oh, finally, I don't have to make a plan. It doesn't matter if I have a plan. I'll just show up tomorrow if I show up. <laughs> I'm not arguing for no planning. I'm arguing for planning that doesn't acknowledge that God rules, God controls, and I want to live in tune with and aligned with His purposes and His priorities if He grants me that opportunity. There's something about humility in that, which is why if you go back to the book of James, 
which is why the next statement is so convicting. So you got 15 that says, you ought to say if the Lord wills. Because if that is not part of your thinking and your vocabulary, and by the way, I also say it's not not planning and not mechanically saying if the Lord wills, like it's some kind of mantra. If I say this, I'm cool. It's saying those words with meaning. A bunch of students are going to graduate Friday if the Lord wills. If I make it to Friday, if I pass the exam that I've studied for before Friday, if Friday comes, I'm going to graduate, if the Lord wills. Because to say otherwise, verse 16, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. The problem is it's arrogant to make claims that are not yours to make. The word arrogant is the idea of presumption. It's the word of having too high, there's a lot of words for pride, but this one is, I think too highly of myself. One word for pride is I elevate me, so you see me, you talk about me, you know my name, I promote me. There's that kind of pride, the Nebuchadnezzar kind of pride. Build me an image. And then there's this kind of pride. I just think too highly of myself. You know, this smacks so much with the Word of Faith movement, the uh, prosperity preachers, the decree it and declare it, and it'll happen. Like I'm a little God, and I control it. You know what? My words have power. And if I speak these words with faith and confidence and declaration, it will happen. You believe it, you will... uh, Achieve it. You know what that is? Arrogant. It's antithetical to what a real Christian does. My claims don't control anything. My presumptions, my confidence. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to is proud. It's an over-high opinion of yourself. Listen, I have value. I've made it, been made in the image of God. I've been ransomed by purchase and price. I am a son of God. I am a privileged person. But it doesn't make me a little God in control of anything. I am not in control of anything. And I don't live insecure, and I'm not living as if it's fatal. Ah, Whatever. I'm aligning my life with the recognition there's a king in heaven and he rules over everything. He's a good God. He's my God. And my goal, if I'm a Christian, is to humbly cooperate with his purposes as I make my plans. Turn over with me to Proverbs chapter 16. Let me give you a little color commentary application in the time that we have. And there's a real shot. I'm going to get through this whole paragraph. So you're going to want to write your friends and family. Pastor Harry got through a paragraph today. That's presumptive. (laughs) There's no guarantee. (laughs) 
Proverbs chapter 16 is in my Bible. So I'm going to give you some things to think about as you live out the consequence of recognizing in humility that there is a God in heaven, it's not me, that it's okay to make plans, it's just not okay to make those plans without acknowledging the God who ordains and controls the outworking of those plans. It's not okay to make plans presuming that I have the opportunity to do those things. This is what you need to be thinking about. Let me give you a couple of things I think he is thinking and is implied in the text that we've been reading. I'm going to talk about what I believe James is saying. Number one, you need to acknowledge God's sovereignty. And number two, you need to put the God who is sovereign into your planning. You need to seek to know his will Three big categories, seek to know God's timing, seek to know God's destination, where God's taking you or wants to take you, and seek to know God's purpose. It's all under seeking to know his will. And it begins by acknowledging God as sovereign over your plans and over your purposes. And again, I'm not saying don't make plans. I was reading a quote from a leading surgeon who said, if I had four minutes to perform an operation, I would spend at least one in planning. And you would say, I'm glad for that, right, if you're the patient. So it's not anti-planning. But look at uh, Proverbs chapter 16. And you're going to see plans here. Verse 16, chapter 16 Verse 1, the plans of the heart belong to man. So again, it's not prohibited to plan. But it's important, verse six, chapter 16, verse 1, part B, to recognize the outcome of your plans is controlled by God. And in here, here it is written, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And housed in this verse is the idea that you're making an appeal, your plan involves an appeal, to someone who has influence over the outcome of your plan, and the answer to that appeal is defined by the sovereign work of God. You're asking someone something. When we uh, bought our house in Santa Clarita in 2015, we came for a weekend in February, and we did the realtor thing, and you go from house to house, and you look at different opportunities and costs associated with those opportunities. And on the very last day of our visit in February in California, Parker and Karen uh, were together and we're at the, looking at the last house. And we get into the kitchen and, and I look over at my wife and she's got tears running down her face. And uh, I said, are you okay? This feels like So guess where I thought we'd have to try for it? That spot. But it was too much money. So the realtor said, Harry, why don't you write a letter to the homeowner, make an offer, and say, this is why we would love to live at your house, live in your house, because it's a block from the campus. 
because my wife cried in the kitchen. <laughs> this feels like home. We're coming from Alabama. We need trees. We're making a plan, but we're also making an appeal. And we're appealing to someone who has influence over the outcome of our desired plan. And you know who controls the outcome of the appeal? The answer that would be given, verse 1, the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So when the reply came back, we were number one in the, the, the queue. We were the first people to make an offer on this house. And if you know anything about California, nobody takes the first offer. They wait for the next one. This couple said, we'll accept your offer. Was it my letter? Was it my persuasive words? Was it the emotional appeal that I've got a crying wife who won't stop crying unless you say yes? (laughs) Who defined the outcome of that appeal? Sovereign God. You don't have to worry. God rules in everything. There's no random anything. And when you're in the business of planning, which is not prohibited, what is to be recognized is, I don't have to worry about this. I'm seeking to do what God wants me to do. I have a plan, but He rules in it. And if it happens, it's because He wants it to happen. And if the answer is no, it's because sovereign God said no. The answer of the tongue is under his dominion and control. Look at verse 9. The mind of man, Proverbs 16, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Now, a word about the word direct, ordains is the way you want to hear it. He sovereignly decides where my next steps will go. I've got a plan. I'll tell you what my plan didn't include. Southern California at the age of 64. As far as I was concerned, I'm going to hire myself as the senior adults pastor at the church in Birmingham. I'm going to fire myself as the senior pastor. And I'm going to walk all the way home with that group of people. I'm going to be Alabama for life. That was my plan. But if you've been a part of our group, 2015 till now, this is God's ordained path. And and when you're in it, you can see it, but at the beginning, you don't see anything. Real Christians make plans and submit those plans to the God who gives the answers and who ordains the outcome. Real Christians don't lay awake at night thinking whatever I do or don't do defines the outcome. Real Christians know that planning is appropriate, but God rules. Can you say amen to that? That's why you can be anxious for nothing. That's why you can present your request to God. That's why you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, because God, your Father, rules. Look at verse 2, or excuse me, verse 3. So what do you do? I like verse 3 of Proverbs 16. It says this, commit your works to the Lord. 
and your plans will be established. The word commits is, it's, it's an interesting word. It's a Hebrew word which literally means to roll your plans. It's like you're rolling your burdens over to the Lord and saying, here's what I have. Here's the heavy backpack I came in with, and I can't carry it, so I bought it on the wheels. And I'm rolling it over, and I'm giving that burden to you. This is a big deal to me. I do want to live near the campus. I do want my wife to be happy. I do want home in a new space, in a new place. And I'm committing, I'm wheeling that burden, that need over to you. And I'm committing that to you. I'm giving it to you. You control it. I want you to have it. That's what establishes my plans. Committing them to the Lord. And allowing Him to establish His plan taking my offering of what I'd like to do and why I'd like to do it. Psalm 93, verse 1, the Lord reigns. He rules. He controls. So commit your works, your plans, here. What are you doing tomorrow? Well, whatever tomorrow's plan is, it needs to house this idea if the Lord wills. It's committed to Him. The outcomes, sovereignly governed. The pathways, sovereignly defined. I'm seeking to stay in tune and cooperate with the one who rules because I'm a Christian. I'm not a practical atheist who lives my life as if God isn't in it. That's the heart of what James is saying. To do otherwise is futile, prideful, sinful. It's arrogant. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And I'm going to give you some kind of practical illustrations of this in the time that we have remaining. Because in the time that I had yesterday, I was just trying to track through the Bible this idea of if the Lord wills. And we have a real good model in the Apostle Paul because you're going to feel this in his approach to life. And I want you to think of three words, okay? Subordinating or cooperating in purpose, okay? If the Lord wills in the purpose, if the Lord wills in the destination, if the Lord wills in the timing. So I'm thinking timing, destination, and purpose. And I want to submit that to the Lord. If the Lord wills the timing, if the Lord wills the destination, if the Lord wills the purpose. That's what I'd like you to sense as we track our way through. First illustration, 1 Corinthians 16. Paul's got a collection. He's got a monetary collection collected from the churches to the needy in Jerusalem. Verse 1, chapter 16, 1 Corinthians, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also, first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections are made when I come. When I arrive at your church at Corinth, I 
When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. That's my purpose. I'm under the commission of God to make a collection, and I'm asking you to collect. And when I get there, I want you to send the guys that you approve to carry the money and the letters and the gift to Jerusalem. So this is a model of God in your planning. I have a purpose it's a sovereign ordained purpose. It's a mission, if you will. And I am asking that God, I'm asking you to assign workers who will fulfill the purpose that I am commissioned to pursue. Verse 4. Now watch this. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they'll go with me. Now what has he just said? I'm not sure I get to go. There's factors that are involved in whether I travel to Jerusalem with the guys commissioned for this purpose. Verse 5, but I will come to you after I go through Macedonia. So he's got a destination in mind for I'm going through Macedonia. Now watch this. And perhaps I will come to you after I go through, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. All right, so what do you have? Timing. Maybe I'll get to the destination, and maybe when I get there, I'll stay a while. I don't know the timing, so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. Look at verse 7. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time. That's his purpose and his passion. I don't want to just stop in for a night or two. I want to spend the winter there. I want to spend time with you. But look at what he says, verse 7 at the end. If the Lord permits. I'll remain in Ephesus, verse 8, until Pentecost. So he's saying, this is where I'm going to be. This is how long I'm going to be there. There's a reason because, verse 9, missionally, Purpose-wise, for a wide door for effective service has opened for me. So just, just feel it. This is a man modeling the theology of God rules. I plan, but I say, your will be done. If the Lord permits, perhaps this is what I want to do. I've got a missional purpose. I believe that God has called me to this. I want the collection to be delivered. I want to spend the winter. All of that is up in the air if the Lord wills. I'm not decided because I don't know. Because I'm cooperating. Because real Christians are cooperating, not deciding. Because the Lord is willing. All right, one more, well, another spot. Romans chapter 1. This is just a little example of how it might work in real time and a real Christian. So this is Romans chapter 1, Paul writing to the church at Rome. He says of the, these people, verse 10, I'm always in my prayers making requests. So I'm praying for you. And then he says this, If perhaps, now at last, by the will of God, I, might, or I may succeed in coming to you. Verse 11, I long to see you so that it may, I may impart some spiritual gift to you. That's the purpose. That you may be established. 
I've got a good purpose. It's a God-aligned purpose. I long to fulfill that purpose. But I don't know if I'll get to fulfill that purpose unless the Lord wills. I'm praying this will happen. So when you're living in the Lord's will, it begins with praying. It involves purposing and your longing, the passions. I, I say this, if you're around me at all, you measure decisions by how you make them, not by their result. You never know what God wants to do, but what you do know is God wants you to make decisions in light of His sovereignty biblically. And part of the decision-making tree is what has God put in my heart to do when I'm walking with God? It is God who works in us both the will and to do of His good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. If I'm walking with God, my passions generated by that walk with God indicate something about the direction of my walk with God. My appetites will be in line with his purposes. And that's what Paul's saying. I long to be with you. Why do I want to be with you? Because I want my life to influence your life. I want your life to influence my life. Look at what he goes on to say. I want to be encouraged, verse 12, together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. That's a good mission. That's a good purpose. That's a... God-aligned idea. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you. Planning. Often. I wanted to, and I've been prevented so far. Sovereignly, providentially, obstacles and barriers. I'm not mad about it. I'm not frustrated about it. I keep wanting to do it. I'm just waiting on God to allow it. Turn over to chapter 15. We're coming to the end. Paul talking about his ministry, verse 18, I I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. So that's his missional purpose. In the power, verse 19, of signs and wonders, that's the validating presence of the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. That's my commission. That's my purpose. That's my aim. This is my pattern. Verse 20. That pattern is governed by a conviction. The conviction is, I'm only going to preach Jesus first where he's not been heard. Verse 20, And thus I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. 21, As it is written, here's a biblical precedent, They who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Verse 22, for this reason, I'm missionally, purposely propelled to preach. I'm governed by the conviction that I'm going to those who haven't heard first. My plans involve those priorities. Verse 22, I have often been prevented from coming to you. I would have come. Remember, I want to come. One of the reasons I haven't come is because I've been targeting the people who haven't heard. I'm doing what's in my heart by God to do first. 
Verse 23, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I've had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing. So I know where I'm going. I'm headed to Spain. They haven't heard. And on my way to Spain, passing through Italy, I want to go through Rome. I've wanted to do this, but sovereignly have been prevented, not by just natural barriers, but by convictions. Look at verse 26. For Macedonia, he's headed to Jerusalem to deliver the, the gifts to the saints. 26. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were excited to do that. Verse 28. Therefore, when I have finished this, this mission, delivering the collection, as well as preaching the gospel to the without knowledge of Christ regions, I will go on my way by way of you to Spain. Now, that's a plan. But look at what he says, verse 30. Now, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. So you got the praying theme again. And you're praying to God for me that I might be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, 31, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. So I want you to pray that I'm successful in the mission that I am pursuing to my destination and for the purpose and the productivity of that mission. Look at verse 32. So that I may come to you. This is back to Rome from Jerusalem. Enjoy how? What does your Bible say? By the will of God. All right. I know I'm beating this over and over, this drum. But I think it's so natural for us to presumptively plan and act. And you have a model follower of Christ saying, Everything I do, from the passions that generate my plans to the convictions that define my plans, they are subordinated to the sovereign rule of God who wills and works. And I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to seek to do what He wants me to do as I look to the passions in my heart that he produces, the peace in my heart that defines those choices. And I'm going to subordinate my will to his will. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Praying, purposing, targeting destinations, submitting my intentions is the Christian way to live. Not fatalism. God honoring Christ discipleship. Can you say amen to that? And if that made sense, would you say amen again? Amen. All right. Lord willing, I'll get to talk to you some more. We've got a whole paragraph. <laughs> Have a great day at Grace Church. God bless you.